Well, welcome, my friends, once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast. This is episode 204 and the third, yes, the third installment of our little mini-series here on the purity culture. Now, if this is the first time you're jumping into the podcast or this is the first one you're listening to on the subject of the purity culture, uh, to give you just a quick recap, it's that whole window that began pretty much in the late 60s uh, as we had the free love movement, we had the feminist movement, we had no-fault divorce. We had all these things. We had the the pill went mainstream. I mean, you name it. All these things kind of hit at the same time in our cultural setting. And as a response to all of that, the church began to ramp up the importance of sexual purity in a culture that was becoming sexually pervasive. Now, all of that had the best of intentions, right? There was real sincerity behind saying, hey, we want to make sure that we are protecting our youth. We want to make sure we're protecting our own sexual fidelity. And so we want to take steps to do that. But so often what happens in these kinds of things is that pretty soon you create programs and you create curriculum and you create standards and there becomes kind of this um, overall community network of ideals and values and they get applied and then pretty soon if somebody fails in those values, there's a sense in which their value diminishes because they didn't uphold the right values or in doing some of this to protect one group of people like we learned last week to protect the boys, we told the girls to then behave so the boys could behave and therefore we created these weird legalisms of what dress you could and couldn't wear, what things you had to do at camp, um, things that again, not bad intended, but maybe not theologically thought through, not thinking through the perspective of what's the Bible say to an individual. And we said, well, we're going to take that responsibility away from the individual and put it on a different individual so that the different individual can do things in such a way that this individual doesn't stumble or fall or fail. Or in that, we talked about really important things like modesty, for example. But then in that, we created rules around modesty to where now it wasn't appealing to the conscience of people or to uh, them like working through and praying through hey, God, where do you want my boundaries to be on modesty? No, we just sort of decided to apply modesty values to everybody. And then in that kind of made it a legalism as well. And that did different kinds of damage. And you get the idea, right? So that's kind of what we've been unearthing. Well, today is going to be the final monologuing installment from me on this topic. And then next week, I'm hoping to pull in my wife, perhaps even my daughter or daughters, uh, to get their perspective. Because I think so often, as I shared earlier in the series, um, I think it's men who write to this, speak to this, lecture to this, preach to this, whatever it is. And yet women have, uh, A, been sometimes neglected in that conversation. B, women have sometimes been exploited or had standards placed upon them by men uh, that kind of diminish their voice on this topic. And frankly, because women are half of what this topic is all about anyway, I really think it's good to hear from them, right? And to hear their perspectives on how you balance modesty from, you know, kind of still being feminine and how you navigate uh, conversations of sexuality, conversations of purity uh, within the Christian culture, and how you try to uh, get to center on how the Bible describes and prescribes sexuality in the context of the Christian life, in the context of marriage, things of that nature, how we get to that 
in a way that is healthy and wholesome and honest and and reverent and yet also grounded in the real life. I mean, part of the reason I've been doing this in the podcast is because this podcast is the everyday missionary. And many of the things I'm trying to do are, are grounding this in the reality that we live in. Because I think sometimes even in the realm of the sexual conversation, we like to talk in principles, but I think in the practicality space, we need to do a better job of talking about the real life challenges, grief, uh, beauty, all of that that is in this subject matter. So that's kind of the heart behind all of this. Now, before I get underway, a couple of housekeeping things. One is sort of related, one is directly related. So the sort of related one is... Uh, Every once in a while on the podcast, I try to give an encouragement of saying, hey, here's a thing you should listen to, or here's a book you should read, or here's a person you should check out, or here's a blog that's interesting. So just some kind of little tidbit that I go like, hey, this would be worth your time perhaps to listen to. And uh, this is sort of an interesting one. So last summer, uh, I read this book called Jesus and John Wayne. Uh, and it's subtitled, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. This is by Kristen Kobes Dume. She is a professor of history at Calvin College. Uh, I think that's in Michigan. Uh, anyway, so she wrote this book. And the book really, and this is how it is kind of related, the book traces the last 70 years of historical development within evangelicalism and how it's led to uh, kind of a authoritarian male, male leadership, how there's been kind of the cover-up of abuses at times, and how even evangelicals kind of want uh, assertive, aggressive, narcissistic leaders to be their leaders in some ways. And so she kind of kind of plots all of that history. Now, if you want to read the book, that's great. But here is like a kind of a, oh, this is nice because I can get it in a simpler format, which is she recently just did a four-part four podcast thing uh, with the Holy Post. And so I've encouraged the Holy Post before on this podcast. Um, it is Bob the Tomato and uh, some other people. And yet uh, one of the people on there is Sky Jatani. And he did a literally a four-part, probably it's four hours total, a uh, little mini-series on Jesus and John Wayne, where he just sits down with this historian and interviews her about all of this. Now, in saying, hey, this might be worth your time, I want to give a warning. And here's the warning, which is when I say, hey, you should check this out. That does not mean that I'm saying I endorse everything that's there or this is the greatest thing ever or I'm 100% on board with what's being said or this is the true source of all problems in life. Like that's not my thing. Sometimes it's just to go, hmm, maybe we need to think about that more or hmm, maybe in there there's some points that are worth taking. Now, the reason I put that in there is because there are certain elements of the of politics that are involved in the book and some who may listen to the podcast or read the book may get frustrated for political reasons, right? My encouragement would be like, as much as you can, don't try to get frustrated for political reasons, but if you decide to listen or to read it, um, to go, okay, does this put some of the pieces together and can I see where maybe this has been true, this has been the trajectory, and this has created some of the problems that we see today? Because I do think that this book outlines some things that are true. I think it outlines some things to where why, you know, as I talk about like sexual dysfunction within Christianity, it's with leaders who have sexual impropriety or do things that are questionable or exercise dominating or chauvinistic authority. 
and then they get excused out of it because, hey, they're doing a good job, they're making a dent for the kingdom, they're making a big difference in the world, whatever it is, and so we excuse bad behavior. This book deals with a lot of that. And so if you want to listen to the four-part podcast series, it's over on the Holy Post, and the four parts are just simply titled Jesus and John Wayne, part one, part two, part three, part four, and so you might want to check it out. Because again, I think that topic in the book, at least some of that there, directly relates to then some of the abuses we see in the church, and I think some of those abuses then even as it stretches into sexual abuses and the sexual dysfunction that has been a part of the Christian community. Because even though we would advocate for what I'm going to call in air quotes, purity, we've done a very poor job of that. We don't have purity when it comes to our use of the internet. We're probably, we're actually statistically no different than disbelieving people when it comes to internet pornography problems. Uh, we have sexual dysfunction in our marriages that is not only equal to the disbelieving world, but there's a recent bit of research that's showing that it's maybe higher dysfunction in marriages, higher problems of sexuality within Christian marriages because of the pressures that have been applied through the purity culture movement. And so we have those dysfunctions there. We have infidelity issues. We have pastoral abuse problems. Uh, the Southern Baptists, I think, uh, I think just a few months ago, I mentioned that, you know, they had 300 cases of sexual abuse. Now it's jumped to 700 and they still are resistant to have an outside force come in and actually investigate those things. So again, for all of our preaching of purity, we've massively missed it. And perhaps that's why we need to revisit some of these things in a different kind of way. So anyway, book, podcast, sort of linked to this in some way, sort of not, but I do think it's very interesting and at least at least it's like something to put in your thinker to go, hmm, I should think about this more. Maybe sort of related to that, another quick podcast shout out uh, is Christianity Today is doing a series called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. That also has some relationship to all of this. And so I just started listening today. Very fascinating. Uh, my friend, Scott Thompson, our executive pastor, he's been blazing through it like he's binge listening. And he says it's completely interesting and fascinating. So that might be another one for you to check out. So that's one bit of housekeeping. The other bit of housekeeping that I want to kind of state to give you a sense of where I'm coming from in some of this is um, I, I, I realize that in dealing with this topic, it brings up all kinds of different emotions for people as they listen, right? So some people are like, thank you, this is a breath of, breath of fresh air. Other people listen to this and they go, um, this brings up a lot of wounds, a lot of frustration, a lot of anger uh, in me because, you know, uh, either A, I was damaged by this or B, uh, you know, Matt, you talked about like, like uh, you know, the Song of Solomon and how it's so celebrated, but in our life or marriage, it's just been dysfunction. It's a conversation we almost can't have. And so there's just so much wounds. It's almost hard to listen to. And that's what I want to acknowledge. I want to acknowledge that there is nothing easy about this topic for a lot of people, you know, and for all sorts of reasons, right? There may be any number of things that that you find that you struggle with or have struggled with, or some of this feels foreign to you or whatever else, or you just kind of uh, maybe suffer in silence a little bit because you just don't even know how to touch the topic with your spouse or whatever else. Like there's all kinds of things where you don't know how to approach a fellow believer and say, this is my struggle. This is my problem. This is my weakness. This is my failure, whatever else. Maybe you just feel constant shame for things or when you fall or fail, you just feel shame and you're like, how will I ever get out of this? How can I ever be rid of this? And and so there's all these pressures and I just want to acknowledge that. And I want to acknowledge that because I think going into the series, what what I wasn't trying to do, and this is going to sound terrible, what, what I wasn't trying to do is say, hey, here's all the ways to fix the damage up to this point. 
What I've tried to do is say, let's acknowledge the damage that was done up to this point. And as we move forward, perhaps we can do it better for the next generation. So I don't think I have as many tools to offer on, hey, if you've been hurt by this, this is how you heal. I think at best what I'm trying to do is say, hey, it makes sense that you were hurt by this in some way, or maybe that your conscience was wired in such a way that now the topic itself is just more grief than joy. It's more pain than pleasure. Like, And, and I go, you know, I I feel for you in that, and I wish there was really good, clean counseling ways to orbit through that in a podcast, and I don't think there quite is. I just don't think this is the format, or I am the person that's skilled to be able to do that, but I do think we can lay a groundwork for continuing generations that approach the topic different than the way we've approached it, and we don't put the value of the person in the exact same place as holding this idea of purity as a value, that we don't want to suddenly say, you know what, of all the sins you could commit, this is the worst one of all, and in that you're permanently branded in some way if this is a sin you commit, or the sexual sins are worse than all the other sins of life, and that's why we give you a ring for this one to keep you from this sin, but we don't give you a ring to keep you from all of the other sins. Again, that's just that example of how we elevated one thing over other things. And in that, we probably didn't always exhibit grace or mercy or understanding or compassion when lines were crossed. And we can do a better job of that because if there's anything that's true about the gospel is that it rescues those who are broken. It rescues those who fail. It finds the woman laying in the dirt and stands between her and the accusers and says, you all have sins, you all should be under a pile of rocks. And therefore, I'm not going to condemn her and she shouldn't be self-condemning herself either. I mean, there's this amazing story there in John 8 that Jesus kind of models to us how we can approach the subject much better than maybe the way we've done it. So just want to say, I get that there's a lot of pain behind this and I know that this isn't solving all of that. At best, here's my encouragement for maybe especially those who just There's been a lot of baggage over the years, maybe within your marriage, and there's a lot of quiet unresolvedness in this. It's maybe start having those conversations. And I don't mean that the end of those conversations is that you go have mad, passionate, crazy sex. I don't mean it like that. I mean, it may never be quite healed, right? Because there may be just enough baggage in there that you never get to a full sense of healing on the topic. But at least if there's openness, then you're not hiding yourself from your spouse. You're you're not saying, you know, like, hey, I'm sorry, I just can't touch this. No, to, to be able to have loving, caring, understanding conversation at least can be helpful as opposed to we just don't acknowledge it, right? We just kind of turn a blind eye and pretend like it's not a thing. We never want to pretend like things aren't a thing in our marriages. We always want to have good conversation, even if it never gets to full restoration or full freedom in some ways, at least having the conversations are important. Understanding one another is important and beginning to try to even maybe rewire the conscience because Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 14 where he's like, you know, there are areas of grayness and yet our conscience gets written onto in such a way that we feel something is wrong when it's not really wrong, but it takes a while to work through that, right? Like the early Jewish Christians, you know, were had to kind of rewire their brain like, wow, wait, let me get this straight. Like I can have bacon now, but I just don't feel comfortable having bacon, but I can and having to work through that and in time kind of rewire the conscience. I think the same thing is true with some of the things that were instilled into us in the purity culture. Once we entered our marriages, we were like, it still feels so wrong and it all feels so broken and I feel so awkward and uncomfortable and I feel like I'm doing a dirty thing when it's actually a wholesome thing. 
And and so maybe part of that is just having honest enough conversations that in time it lightens the load of the conscience. Um, not by saying I throw out the Bible, but rather because I'm grafting in the Bible and taking the Bible seriously on what it says about sex and pleasure and giving that to one another and instead of letting it just be an awkward silence that exists in the relationship. So just some things to think about as well as, you know what, maybe some of us that are listening go, you know what, I have a, a history in this arena that I just picked up a lot of baggage for any number of reasons, right? So maybe it wasn't so much the, the people that said, you know what, I was taught that if I marry a virgin and I'm a virgin, it's going to be amazing. And then you like that wasn't the case. But then there's other people who are like, you know what? No, I wasn't a virgin. There was different things in my life. I experimented here. I did that there or whatever else. And and you feel like, you know, you're you're just again, you're you just now have kind of the scarlet letter and and don't know how to get past that. My encouragement to you is just remember, hey man, his mercies are new every morning. Uh I want to remind you of the fact that the old is dead, the new has come. Your righteousness is not predicated on whether you had a good or bad history. Your righteousness is predicated on the work of Christ or the work of Christ on the cross for you. There is no condemnation, it says in Romans 8 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't condemn you for your past. So you shouldn't condemn you for your past, or you shouldn't condemn your kid for their decisions, or you shouldn't condemn their, your spouse for their decisions. But again, we need to work toward grace, forgiveness, and unity anew, right? That's the spirit of the New Testament on this. And so that is some of the housekeeping and some of the stuff I wanted to just kind of touch base on as we go into this final installment. And this final installment is a little different because what I'm going to kind of advocate for is a focus that is less on purity and it's more on holiness. So I want to say that again, I want to focus on a thing where the focus is less on purity and more on holiness. And I know for some of us that just seems like a synonym, but it is absolutely not a synonym. So if it was a synonym, then we wouldn't find the word purity in the Bible or pure in the Bible. Uh, and, and then also holy would just, just pick a word, right? Just stay with holy or stay with pure, but they're not synonyms. They actually have a range of meaning and difference. But one of the things that stood out to me is actually something that I, I briefly alluded to this last Sunday at church as I was talking about being called to holiness. And it was out of first Thessalonians chapter three, going into chapter four. I want to revisit that right now. I'm going to read the passage to you. And then I'm going to tell you what stands out to me and why I think we need to shift the vision from purity to holiness and what that will exactly entail. So Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church. It's his first letter of correspondence. It's chapter three, verse 12. And he says, may the Lord make you make your love increase and overflow for each other and from for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with his holy ones. And so holy is really critical here as well as being blameless and everything else, being strong in heart for this. And so then he goes into chapter four and he kind of builds on the theme. He says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge that you and the Lord Jesus uh, to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified and that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own bodies in a way that is holy and honorable, i.e., don't tell the girls to put on a bathing suit to help the boys control themselves, let the boys just control themselves. That would be kind of an example of that. I digress. All right. So in a way that would be holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. 
And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now, here's what I think is interesting about this section. Paul doesn't say, for God called us not to be impure, but to be pure. Like, you would assume that. You would anticipate that. Like, the opposite of impurity is purity. Like, that's where Paul would go. But that's not exactly where Paul goes. Paul says he doesn't want you to be impure. Rather, he wants you to be holy. So, it's not like, instead of A, choose B. It's like, instead of A, choose one. You know, it's like, it it jumps slightly in this, right? Because holiness is different than just simple purity, And so the functional definition I always give of holiness is true holiness is love displayed in mercy and justness. And at the core of this is this idea of loving God and loving your neighbor in such a way that you do things that are merciful, you do things that are just, and that is the true essence of love. And see, that's where Paul is trying to get this community in Thessalonica to to kind of embrace, right? That it's not just simple a simple thing of saying, well, then just be pure. Because you know what? You can be pure and unholy. You could be pure and unloving, right? So there are all sorts of other religious systems out there that advocate for very high levels of personal purity, but they're not necessarily holy. And so this is what I want us to begin to understand, that what we want to graft into the life of the church is not saying, hey, you got to make sure you're pure, but rather you got to make sure you're holy. And by holy, you want to look at the people around you. You want to look at your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You want to look at those who are outside of the church, men and women. And you want to say, you know what? My job is to not use you. My job is to love you. Because true holiness doesn't use others. True holiness invests into others. See, purity is all about keeping me pure or keeping you pure, but holiness is about me loving you so much I don't take advantage of you. I don't misuse you. I don't abuse you. I don't exploit you for my own personal pleasures. And that's what Paul said there, right? He says, I want to make sure you do this, that you don't get engaged in your passionate lusts and take advantage or wrong a fellow brother or sister in Christ. In that context, it's clear that that's his motivation. And this is the thing that we should be encouraging more and more is not saying, hey, your value is your chastity, but rather you are called to be holy. You're called to love other people. You're called to be sacrificial for other people. You're called to not use other people. That should be the thing we most value. Even more than purity, we should value holiness. Because if we're valuing this definition of holiness and we're really saying, I'm committed to loving the people around me in a selfless and sacrificial way, then you're not going to want to take advantage of, use, exploit, um, kind of enter in out of due season things that are not necessarily yours for the taking. Because you're saying, I care more about them than I care about me. I care about their well-being more than I care about my personal gratification. See, I'll tell you why this is interesting to me. And I was thinking about this in the context of marriage, right? You could have in the context of marriage, sex, and from that you'd say, well, it's pure. It's pure because it's in the context of marriage. The husband and wife are doing this together and that makes it pure. And I go, well, it may be pure according to the law, but it may be unholy according to Christ. 
And here's what I mean. First Corinthians seven, right? The husband is to render to his wife, the affection due her. And the wife is to render to her husband, the affection due him. Literally what Paul is saying is the job of the husband is to pleasure the wife. The job of the wife is to pleasure the husband. In other words, it's not about you. It's about the other. What makes it holy is it says, I put you before me, right? So you could have a wife that's just taking from a husband or a husband that's just taking from a wife. And while it may be, quote, biblically pure, it's also biblically unholy because holiness doesn't take advantage of the other. Holiness loves the other, even if you suffer a little bit of your own advantage in the process of that, just in general, in all things in life. That's the essence of holiness, right? It's a true love of neighbor. It's a true investment of the other. And so this is to be much more the heart behind what it is we want to accomplish. So let me use a different example. If I think about pornography, my focus on the issue of pornography should not be, well, we need to be pure. No, the focus should be, we need to be holy. Because if I'm thinking in terms of holiness, then I'm thinking in terms of this is not loving to perhaps my spouse. This is not loving to my future spouse. This is not loving to my own kind of psychological composite. This is not loving to the people who are depicting these things on the screen. This is not loving to, uh, you know, the, 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 the people that put all this together because it's all exploitation. It's all taking for my own gratification. None of that is love. None of that is merciful. And none of that is ultimately even just, right? It doesn't matter if one's married or single or whatever. Just the whole industry of pornography, the whole process of ingesting it, it's not just simply that it's, quote, impure. It's that it lacks love. It lacks mercy. It lacks justness. What those people are kind of thrust into and forced to do is there's so much of a mess in there. Again, it's not an industry predicated on its mercifulness toward human beings or a sense of fairness or justness in that arena. It just is not. And anytime we engage in that, we're just kind of authorizing more of the same, right? As one person said, I forget who it was. It might've been some of the guys that founded Triple X Church. Uh, they're like, you know what? There wouldn't be a pornography industry if there wasn't consumers. There wouldn't be a sex trafficking industry if there wasn't consumers. It stops with us. It starts with us. It wouldn't exist if the market didn't demand it. And Christians are a part of that market too. And so that's an example of how we want to think in terms of the other's value is dear to me. And I want to then love them by magnifying their value. That's the essence of holiness. So I think this is why Paul doesn't say purity, but he says holy, right? He, he Again, that idea of God didn't call you to be impure, but he called you to love. That's what he's getting at. And that's the way we want to live this out. And so what we want to do in that space then is be looking at everything through that lens and saying, all right, the actions that I'm about to engage in, the position I'm about to take on the subject of sexuality, is it a holy version? Is it a version that is loving and merciful and just, right? Is it about others more than about myself? And and therefore, this kind of springs into some other areas as well. So let's say, for example, you have your son or daughter. You find out they're 17 and they you've just discovered that they, they've had sex with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever it might be. What is your next move, right? Let's say you, you found out because you snooped on their texts or whatever the thing is that you discovered. What is your next move? See, in the purity model, 
the, the thing would be you're impure and I need to confront your impurity because you've lost your purity. The holy model, I think, would come along and say, you know what? I'm going to enter into this conversation in love, mercy, and justness. So I'm going to approach this as a fellow sinner coming alongside another sinner. And instead of it being condemnation or shame or how could you do this or we didn't raise you like this and all the little speeches we love to give as parents, what if we came alongside instead and instead of wanting to to utilize the sense of I want you to feel bad for what you did, we came alongside in love. We came alongside reminding of the potential for restoration and forgiveness. We came alongside in such a way that we say, hey, I understand you know, just human temptation, human weakness. Again, it's not saying, hey, good job, boy, pat on the back, move ahead. It's not that, but it's coming alongside with genuine understanding. And in that, not saying, all right, now your label's changed, right? Or your value has diminished, but rather we keep holiness at the forefront because here's what I think is really, really important here. Um, love is always a, a supreme motivator to shame. Right, grace is a powerful change agent. If it wasn't, God wouldn't have used it. If law was better, if condemnation was better, that's what God would use. But God's like, nope, that's not what works. What works is grace. What works is self-sacrifice. What works is coming alongside and bearing a burden, right? Now you might find your kids like, yeah, I did it and I don't care, no big deal. You can't stop me. I'm an adult, I'll do what I want. Like you might deal with all of that. And then even in that space, you still want to try to woo and win your kid versus you just want to do a headbutt and go into a massive civil war between you and your son or daughter, right? Like there's still this thing in which we go, I want to approach everything in the spirit of true holiness, which is I'm going to love this neighbor kid of mine uh, as I love myself. I'm going to understand them as I understand myself. I'm going to kind of, um, I don't want to say anticipate, but I'm going to, um, in a, in a weird way, appreciate the fact that they're human and weak and make mistakes because I've done the same thing too. Maybe not that topic, a different topic or in other ways, but still it's the coming alongside and doing that. Now I know this is incredibly hard for us as parents. In fact, just as a personal anecdotal story, um, I, I remember um, when, when my son came out, my wife and I had this conversation that said, you know what? Um, if he was the kid next door, this is really easy, but he's my kid and it's really hard. And part of what I meant by that is it's really easy when it's the kid next door because you don't have the same kind of dog in the fight and you don't feel like somehow your reputation's on the line for their actions. And so you can be much more gracious. You can be more understanding. You can be more kind. You can be more like, I understand we're all human kind of talk. And and yet when it's your kid, it's like, no, they're going to get the lecture. They're going to get the grounding. They're going to get the, you know, tighten the screws down even more and monitor everything even more. And there's just that temptation to do that. It's like to use law instead of grace when there has been something of some line that gets crossed in some way. And so we had this conscious decision to say, we're going to have to actively think like he's the neighbor kid down the street. We have to treat him like the neighbor kid down the street. Otherwise, we're going to continue to probably fail him because our own ego is caught up in the actions of our child. And and that is a breakdown because that's not loving my neighbor as myself. And so this is that thing that we'll do well to do is saying, okay, holiness needs to shape every aspect of that. And when I say holiness, I mean the functional definition of holiness, of love displayed in mercy and justness. Because again, I go back to Paul. 
He wants their, quote, sexual purity, but not at the cost of their holiness. And religions can create sexual purity dramatically at the cost of holiness. But our mode is to be, nope, I want it to be true, holy intervention, which is to love my kid, love my neighbor, love this person, love my spouse, love whatever, as I love myself, and then apply just that formula to the situation. Because that is going to be where the ultimate win comes out of this, right? The ultimate win is going to be what I said last week, which is personal ownership, that people just want to personally own things. And the best way for personal ownership is not, uh, again, guilt, shame, and manipulation. It's not threat and warning. It's actually instilling a higher value that blankets all things. And therefore, because that is your higher value, you drive everything through that filter. And that's why I think holiness is the highest value in the scripture as far as, again, this idea of love made manifest in the world toward other people. And so if we can raise our kids to have that sense of value, then they're legitimately going to value others. And in that, I think there is the effect of they also value themselves and the standards that they take, right? And then in that, if there's failure, if there's fall, if there's mistake, if there's overstep, if there's whatever, there's always the reminder of, yes, part of what this is all about too is grace. And it's about forgiveness. It's about moving forward. And it's about praying a lot, like that the Lord would work and move and act in the hearts of people so that they maybe make decisions that are healthier for their own life and healthier for the lives of those that they interact with. Like that's the package deal that we want to really center on. And so as I kind of round all of this out in this little series and kind of stop at this particular point until we talk to my wife next week, um, I just want to just kind of keep it as simple as that. Like we have to look at this in that lens again of, of true love of neighbor. If we can instill that, right, then we're going to be better off. We're going to be better off because again, it's going to then shape, you know, why do I want to not uh, kind of, you know, I don't know, check out some person, you know, walking down the street or at the gym or whatever else, because it wouldn't be loving, right? It's, that's, it's, again, it's not just, well, because it would be impure. It's just not loving. It's not respectful toward them. You know, why do I want to make sure that I, I look at women, for example, in a certain light? Because it's loving, because it shows their, their radical value and worth as image bearers of God. I want that to be at the forefront. Not like, wow, she's dressing a little slutty. And so, you know, like, no, that doesn't show value. That's disdain. That's the, the, it's the opposite of what true holiness is all about, right? So holiness is what it's all about. It's what we need. It's what we need to live by. It's how we need to drive the grid and how we need to do things on this subject, right? Now, I know in that, that sounds like a very pat answer. I get it. But I think sometimes, or at least maybe it seems very principled. And I go, yeah, it is principled. But it changes the angle just enough to where now, again, what we're using to assess things is not, is it pure, but is it loving? That is a radical shift. It really is. Because then you're going to approach everything as, okay, how do I then execute love versus how do I execute purity? How, how do I course correct with love how, as opposed to how do I course correct because there's impurity? It's a, it's a different model. It's a different game. One is rooted in law and the other is rooted in grace. And that makes a big difference. See, the tragic reality is all the rules and laws we created for the purity culture just basically was living under Moses. It's living under law and law will only exacerbate and excite our desire to rebel. 
And I shared that also in the last couple of podcasts. And I just want to reinforce that. Law does not work. Law is cursed. Law invites failure or law invites shame even when you didn't fail for a whole different set of reasons. But boy, we got to be motivated by the spirit. We got to be motivated by grace. We got to be motivated by holiness. And if we do that on this topic, I think more and more we will thrive as everyday missionaries.